Hello, and welcome back to Thoughts on Foreign Policy. There's a great program for you today, and I hope you enjoy it. As always, I will be your host, Derek Bisacchio. Thankfully, I didn't get shut down after episode one, so I'm right back at it with episode two until someone says otherwise, or I get kicked out of the building I'm recording this in, whichever comes first. In the meantime, we'll be taking a look at the capture of a man connected to the 2012 Benghazi attack and the ongoing situation in Ukraine. Now, before we begin, I'd like to share my selection for quote of the week. Now, let me tell you, there were some great choices, but the following is pure gold. On June 17th, former Vice President Dick Cheney and his daughter Liz Cheney wrote an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal entitled The Collapsing Obama Doctrine. In it, they outline their argument for how the Obama administration has failed in its foreign policy and, in doing so, has put America at risk. On the subject of Iraq, the topic we spoke about last episode, the Cheneys had this to say. Rarely has a U.S. president been so wrong about so much at the expense of so many. Hmm. So rare it happened last administration, and with the same country. Flashback to 2003 as the United States was preparing to invade Iraq. Then-Vice President Cheney, together with then-President George W. Bush, informed the American public that Saddam Hussein, the longtime dictator of Iraq, was in possession of weapons of mass destruction, namely nuclear weapons of mass destruction, that would be used against America. Because of this, it was imperative that the United States ignore the objections of nearly every other country on the planet and invade. Hundreds of billions of dollars later, and the deaths of thousands of American soldiers, no hint of nuclear weapons were ever found. In the aftermath, the fragile unity that Saddam had been able to establish through brute force shattered, thanks in no small part to the Bush administration's decision to disband the Iraqi army. Chaos reigned in the country. Sunni and Shia death squads emerged and targeted one another as well as American troops with deadly bombings. Though Al-Qaeda hardly had any presence in Iraq prior to the invasion, it sprang up immediately after Saddam fell. As I argued last week, the current turmoil in Iraq has little to do with the Obama administration and more to do with the sectarian policies of Prime Minister Nuri al-Maliki. In light of this, it is interesting to see Mr. Cheney so easily heap blame on Mr. Obama while ignoring the fact that it was the administration he served in that caused this whole mess to begin with. I know, the, the blame Bush answer is outdated. I always wanted to use it when I forgot to do chores around the house, but in this case, it clearly applies. Let's move on, shall we? One of Mr. Obama's other failings that has been repeatedly cited by critics since 2012 was his apparent inability to go capture people in another country. On September 11, 2012, extremists in the Libyan city of Benghazi attacked both the American consulate and a CIA annex, killing four Americans, including the U.S. ambassador to Libya, Christopher Stevens. Surrounded by allegations of mismanagement, Mr. Obama promised to the American people that those responsible for the attack would be brought to justice. Well... It isn't that easy. Libya is hardly stable at the moment following the revolution of 2011 that toppled its ruler, Colonel Gaddafi. That revolution was assisted by the United States as well as European partners in NATO in the form of air support, but the victorious militias that brought down the colonel have not since disbanded or worked together. The fragile democracy that exists has little power, and militias and cities often clash with one another. It is in this morass that the 2012 attack in Benghazi occurred. Prior to this week, the Obama administration had little to say for its post-Benghazi actions in Libya, but this week, American special forces were able to capture a man named Ahmed Abu Khatala, a man who has been called the ringleader of the attack. This ringleader apparently was never one for discretion, for fighters inside the city have said that he often would roam alone, and he even appeared in an interview with CNN. In that interview, he denied playing any role in the consulate attack, claiming he didn't even know there was a consulate. As a leader of a militia in Benghazi, odds are he did know about the building. 
The attack on both the consulate and the CIA annex, though initially believed to be spontaneous, was coordinated well. The New York Times conducted a study on the events that night that pointed out there was evidence of prior reconnaissance of each compound, suggesting someone knew what the two buildings were. Maybe that someone wasn't him and maybe it was. Regardless of whether Abu Khatala was the one who ordered the attack or was merely just present, as he claims, the Obama administration has proven it is taking steps to apprehend those involved. Perhaps not fast enough for some, but probably as fast as can be expected. The Libyan government is taken aback that the United States would conduct such an operation, and some have even called for Abu Khatala's return. Just like when the United States raided the compound of al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, it appears the Obama administration did not provide advance warning of the operation prior to it. Given the instability of Libya and the weak authority its government wields, those calls for Abu Khatala's return will go unanswered. After all, it was the United States who stopped one militia from subverting the government and exporting oil illegally. In March, as an oil tanker laden with illicit Libyan oil was nearing Cyprus, American special forces landed on it and took control. The bigger picture in Libya is still chaotic. One rogue general has taken it upon himself to rid the country of its Islamist extremists and has launched a series of attacks on such groups, particularly in Benghazi. With this campaign ongoing and the fact that the United States wanted to take him in, it's a wonder Abu Khatala went about so unguarded. So what happens next for the man? The Obama administration has indicated it seeks to try him in a U.S. court of law. Some lawmakers would like to see the man taken to Guantanamo Bay for, shall we say, enhanced questioning. Probably not going to happen. That would directly contradict Mr. Obama's promise to close the detention facility, a pledge that has proved difficult to fall through with, though he still maintains it as a goal. Let's leave the Middle East and go north, to the country of Ukraine, where for months now tensions have been running high following the decision of Russia to annex the Crimean Peninsula from its neighbor. In March, a referendum in Crimea that had no outside observation and was gallantly staffed by Russian troops and armed thugs found that 95% of Crimea's people, or at least 95% of those who went to the polls, were in favor of leaving Ukraine for Russia. Russia, acting upon that, swiftly annexed the peninsula. In the months since, there have been fears that Russia would go further, perhaps crossing the border into eastern Ukraine to assist separatist movements that have broken out. Presidential elections in Ukraine that took place recently have hardly eased the situation. Ukraine has sealed off its border with Russia and launched a full-out war against the separatist groups in the east, intending to stop them from rewriting the country's borders any further. Other states in the region have watched fearfully, concerned that Russia could turn next on them. Russian President Vladimir Putin has demonstrated that he takes his fear of influence very seriously. With him as prime minister, Russia fought Georgia in 2008 and has now challenged Ukraine's ambition to join the European Union. Could other countries, particularly other former Soviet Union countries, be next? That's the question many of them are asking. There is hope yet for peace to prevail. New Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko has outlined a peace plan that aims to defuse the conflict. In a hopeful sign, Mr. Putin has lent his support for the plan, stating that dialogue is crucial and that any agreement must recognize the rights of Russian speakers inside Ukraine. However, the ceasefire agreement has not entirely held. Reports of skirmishes have come out, and alongside this, Ukraine accuses Russia of allowing military supplies, including tanks, bound for the separatists to cross illegally into the country. Mr. Poroshenko has hinted that he has a backup plan should the ceasefire fail, and that backup plan likely means continued military action.
Looking beyond just Ukraine, let's look at consequences in terms of policy that emerge from this crisis. The European Union has long held that expansion is key to ensuring stability in Europe. In the two decades since the Union was formally proclaimed, it has steadily marched across the continent right up to the border with Russia. NATO, a military organization that includes the United States, has expanded as well, encompassing states that border Russia. Russia sees this expansion as a threat both to its sphere of influence and to its national security, and has therefore sought to stop the expansion where possible. Perhaps as a direct result of the crisis in Ukraine, NATO has, according to news outlets, considered shelving the idea of offering steps to Georgia to join the organization. At least in the short term, that is a smart idea. Article 5 of NATO's founding agreement terms an attack on one member as an attack on all members. Should Russia fight Georgia again, that would mean all of NATO is contractually bound to attack Russia or undermine the very principle that holds the group together. The European Union undoubtedly still sees benefit in expansion, but it is now seeing the challenges that expansion entails. It has run into problems with having to absorb the financial struggles of new members and now the issue of pulling members into its sphere from the sphere of another. As the peace plan either works or fails in Ukraine, we'll cover it again in the future. So now that we've discussed both Libya and Ukraine, I'd like to provide a summary of a few key events to keep tabs on moving into this week. The first is Iraq as the fighting there heats up. The United States is sending advisors to the country to help, but so far remains skeptical about airstrikes. As the situation on the ground changes, that stance may change. Another issue is in Israel and Palestine, where Israel has conducted a series of raids in the West Bank following the kidnapping of several Israeli citizens. This is the latest in a string of bad relations between the two as hopes for a two-state solution slowly fade. Also, it is crucial to pay attention to Nigeria, where militants connected to Boko Haram have continued to launch attacks against the citizens of Nigeria despite intense pressure from the country's military. And lastly, of course, for you soccer fans, keep an eye on the World Cup. Today, the United States plays Portugal. Good luck, USA! This concludes this week's Thoughts on Foreign Policy. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the program. See you next week.